The letter read, the time had arrived, the time to depart. It didn't tell us what it meant, just that we got to leave. I was 18 years old. I had two things on my agenda. One, say my goodbyes to my country. Two, move across the oceans. I was more than ready, or I thought I was. I had waited for 10 years. Surely not, but it's sufficiently. I had pressed pause on my life a long time ago, and it was time, finally time to press play. And I already knew the rules. I'll be as white as I can, you be as ignorant as you can. I will laugh at your pop culture references. Please don't ask me what my nationality is. I'll study to become an engineer. Please think of me as a good standing citizen. I'll speak English like you. Don't think less of me. I'll subscribe to your belief system. Let me belong here. I'll pretend that I need saving. I, I mean it. I'll pretend to the point that I, even I, don't know I'm pretending. You can be the hero of my story. In fact, I'll pretend until my reflection in the mirror is unrecognizable. Then you tell me who I am. Explain to me. Mansplain too, because I understand that better. I was a nobody after all. And flying across the oceans just made me more unsure. No, no, no. It's not you. It's me. I'm unsure of me. Tell me again who I am. Tell me again about wrong and right, black and white. I'll stay quiet for you to talk. You surely have better things to say, but mainly I'll stay quiet because I think you're right. Departure again, not me, you. Void was all that was left, or so I thought. I could hear my thoughts. An unveiling was in the making. I broke the rules. I'm as brown as I can be. I don't laugh at the jokes I don't get. My nationality is human. My accent is your reminder of life outside of you. I walked into the wilderness and no belief system was required after all. I could hear my inner guide, so your ego got crushed. Welcome to the protagonistas. So as a woman of color, a lot of people want to know where I'm from, you know, because I have pigment in my skin. So um, a lot of people want to know what my ethnicity is or, or nationality. Um, so that does make me feel uncomfortable when someone I don't know asks me that. And I think that just kind of fed into me not feeling like I belong and I don't have it, my own tribe or people who, who I can uh, relate to and it still does um, a, a being Iranian I struggle with finding my own place because hey I'm not black I'm not a Latina I'm, I'm, I'm an Iranian and I get mistaken for being a Latina or Indian or something else, but um, I I struggle every day at work or at churches or in my social circles with where I stand. From like not getting people's pop culture references to just, just feeling out of place because I wasn't um, raised here. So you just heard from my friend Nilo. 
Nilu is an engineer who lives in Southern California. I met her while on a sacred feminine retreat where a group of about 30 women, pretty much all of us strangers, got to share a weekend together out in the middle of nowhere. We meditated and retreated and did a lot of healing from ways that as women, our bodies and our minds and our sexuality has been exploited by culture or even by religion. And Nilo stood out to me. On one of the days, she was able to share a part of her story with the group. You'll hear more of Nilu's story later. But when I met her, I learned that she was from Iran and she had moved to the States when she was 18 years old. Actually, that poem that you heard at the beginning of the episode, that was written by her. And I don't know if you caught it, but it's about her experience when she moved here. But when I met Nilu, she shared about her experiences particularly growing up in an Islamic context and then converting to Christianity. And she said something that was really interesting. She shared that she had gone from, quote, one patriarchal culture and religion to another one. And while this seems like a simple statement, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I was so intrigued to hear what she meant. So I asked her, and you'll get to hear more of that conversation in a bit. But before that, you'll get to hear from Mimi Haddad. Mimi is the president of the Center for Biblical Equality. I came upon the CBE during my initial stage of trying to figure out where I stood when it came to women in the Bible. Like I mentioned in the interview, which you'll get to hear, I came upon the CBE's website through my friend Nick and Allison Quinn's podcast. It's called Split Frame of Reference, and you should totally check it out if you're a Bible nerd and want to learn up on egalitarian stuff. Anyways, when I found the CBE, I felt like my world had exploded in the best way. I'll admit, I'm a Bible nerd too. When it's understood and taught properly, I think it's a fascinating and complex book, and I think the CBE gets that. They're dedicated to solid scholarship, which I totally love. I learned so much from that organization about women, about scripture, and I was even more excited to hear that the president, Mimi, is a woman of color. She comes from a Lebanese background, and and you'll get to hear some great content on her culture and how it has informed her views of scripture. She's also brilliant and a total boss. After Mimi's interview, you get to hear my conversation with Nilu, who's also incredible and a total boss. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Mimi. Sure. Yeah. And so I got involved. I wanted just a little background of how I found you and how I found your work. So I, as some of the the people listening already know, I, I left my denomination about a year and a half ago, two years ago. And as I was transitioning over to Fuller and in my research and in my study and in, in my seminary that I was at, I was looking to just kind of get deeper into the Greek text, the New Testament text, and get deeper into women in the New Testament and women in scripture. And through that, I first came upon um, Nick and Allison Quint, their their podcast. And if you guys haven't heard it, it's called Split Frame of Reference. Go check that out. And I think they had like a link. And so when I clicked on the link, it took me to the Center for Biblical Equality, the CBE International. And I was completely blown away by everything, all the research, everything I read. I mean, academic journals, everything. And ever since then, I have just been, you know, a huge, huge, huge fan of your organization. And um, and I've even gotten the opportunity to write for the Arise blog. So that's been so much fun. And so uh, Dr. Haddad here, she is the president. And so I want to know how, so what is your background? You know, I would love to know about your family and, and life growing up and, and just a little bit of background on who you are. Okay, well, actually, my journey is a lot like yours <laughs> because um, I grew up with Christian parents and my 
family is from the Middle East. My father is uh, Lebanese and my mother is from Paris. And so I heard many languages in our home growing up. So it was, it was very clear to me as first generation in the United States that I did not have sort of a cultural community that would help me understand just this ethnic culture that, that existed in our own home. Mm. And so that was when people, people used to make fun of my last name and my uncles would come from the Middle East wearing long robes and carrying their prayer beads around, which is mm. very common. Mm. And they would sit outside and play backgammon. And that's, that also is very common in the Middle East. And so often our family culture and traditions were sort of points of mockery and scorn growing mm. up. And, and of course, Arabs are portrayed so negatively yeah. in film and, as well to this day. And, and yet, as I explored my faith even uh, deeper as I grew up, I realized how much the Arab world contributed to the very faith I treasured so much and mm. how the uh, original texts were in Arabic and Aramaic and Hebrew mm. and how the culture itself, once you understand it well and, and appreciate it, can actually inform your understanding of the Bible and especially mm. Jesus's treatment with women. Mm. And so in the Middle East to this day, we have these so-called honor killings. This is one example. And a good friend of mine has written a wonderful, wonderful book called Middle Eastern Belongings. And as we learn that Jesus was speaking directly to women's empowerment and women's dignity and mm. agency in challenging some of the very places where they had been culturally uh, marginalized. Mm. And so I think of this whole metaphor of womb. What does it mean to be born again? Um, Nicodemus asks Jesus, can I climb into my mother's womb again? And Jesus said, you must know, but you were born of the spirit. And, mm. and so the womb is a place of identity in the Middle East. If, if you come out of a woman's womb, uh, you are uh, ethnically part of the tribe that whose father the, the child belongs to. And that's why honor killings and protecting the womb are so important. And it's very interesting to me that the early church shaped their baptismal fonts in the, in the shape of a womb to say, we are born of the womb of the Holy Spirit. And so our, our identity is not associated with our mother's womb and who our father might be, but with this sense of re being reborn into Christ's identity, our second creation. And so those are the things that I began to see so vividly growing up with an Arab heritage that made it very poignant for me as a egalitarian that Jesus is directly reframing the very metaphors and images that had enslaved women and, and releasing them. Uh, and this idea that women are unclean during their period or after giving birth to a child. Jesus has publicly honors a woman who has led for decades mm -hmm. and saying, your faith has made you well. You're not unclean. You're ill. And so he's in all of his work with women and especially going to marginalize women like the Samaritan woman, mm -hmm. uh, the woman he holds, the person he holds the longest conversation with, or the Syrophoenician woman up in Lebanon. And, you know, she uses this metaphor, dogs, should the, Jesus said, should the dogs 
eat the, you know, should I let the dogs eat the crumbs from under the table? Because the rest of the world viewed these people, the, the Syrophoenicians, as dogs. And this woman says, even the dogs, you know, mm-hmm. deserve the crumbs under the table. And Jesus said, for, the, for your great faith, faith that actually exceeded the disciples, Jesus said, your daughter will be healed. Mm-hmm. And so he's recognizing that faith and responsiveness to the gospel exists in people who were once viewed as dogs. In fact, her faith exceeded the disciples who only a few chapters earlier wondered how Jesus could turn a couple of loaves and a few fish into food for, for 5,000. And she had no doubt Mm-hmm. that the crumbs would be enough for her. And so there are these just this constant um, revelation that God, that Jesus in particular, is raising the dignity of women, and especially women who had been marginalized ethnically. Mm, that's incredible. Thank you so much for all of that. Yeah, I think um, just hearing about your background, it's it really is incredible how that informs so much of how you understand and so much of how you read. And I think that's so important. I, I feel like I have something similar and just uh, for, for a long time in my seminary, in the beginning of my seminary uh, career, my my background was very muted. And then, you know, kind of coming out of that and like, wait a minute, like, what does that mean for, you know, like a Latina woman who is marginalized? Like, how can I, uh, how can I view, you know, the marginalization of poor Latina women? And how can I read that with, with the backdrop of the New Testament? And, and it really is so beautiful um, how much much more colorful you can read that. Um, and I think that you have such a beautiful advantage uh, because, you know, the, your Arab background, like you said, um, so many of us have to do so much extra reading and extra learning and extra uh, studying, you know, to understand that. And so I think it's, it's really beautiful and really helpful uh, that you, you know, that you can kind of understand that you have a, a head in that, you know, you have a little bit of, of extra ground on that. You know, considering your background and, and all, so how did you get to a place where, you know, you decided, all right, I'm going to pursue this, or, or is that what you thought originally, or, or just how did you get into where you are now? Well, it's kind of a mystery to me as well, <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose um, you can see God's hand working all along. As I said, what had been once a, a point of shame because it was, um, I was mocked because of my culture. Mm. Uh, growing up, I began to see that that in God's providence, in, in, in God's wisdom, and through God's love, these were actually rare gifts that in time would become a source of encouragement, not only to me personally, but to the people I serve through CBE. Yeah. And so I began to see that often things that seem like burdens and, and wounds or what might be viewed as a, a failure, a failure, are actually places where God, uh, I think it was Lilius Trotter who worked in Algiers, she said, wherever you struggle the most, that, that is the very place you can expect God to bloom uh, and, and grow you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just so true, mm-hmm. for me at least. And so I was sort of used to, I, I think my father, though he was Lebanese, he was a great advocate of, of women, and he said that one of the reasons why he wanted to raise his daughters in the United States is because he felt like the Middle East would have been too confining. And he was always very skeptical of me, especially going into church work, because he felt like it was another form of uh, discrimination against women. Mm. And so he was very 
careful and cautious to ask me multiple times if I really wanted to, to do this kind of work. And then he could see that I had the, I had the calling and I had God's favor and, and that it really was the right thing to do. And he was happy to see other women liberated through my own experiences and my vocation. But the way it, it has worked out is I just, you know, I think, and I've struggled my whole life with this, and this is just totally raw, raw mm-hmm. me. But I, I have always been unable to control my prophetic voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there are times where I've been on the subway in a, in a city where I was going to college, and I, somebody was beating someone up, and I just jumped in. <laughs> That's amazing. And it's like, you get your hands off of him. And it's like, and the guy turns to me and says, well, are you his mother? And I said, maybe I am. And and then one time I remember, this is the strangest thing, but all through my life, I've just found myself jumping in this, this little um, girl, her mom was playing tennis and she was all dressed up in her tennis outfit. And her mom, um, her little girl jumped into the swimming pool um, in the deep end. Mm. And her mom just said, well, I'm dressed in my tennis gear. I can't jump in and save you. So, so I did. I jumped in, grabbed her, pulled her out, and her mom was really thankful. And then years later, I thought, why would a mother not jump in and grab her child? I guess she figured the rest of us would. So yeah. so those are just, there are just so many cases where I almost, I, I, I really don't even think. I see something that just frightens me and terrifies me, and I jump in and say, this, I just don't like it when people are bullied. I hate it. I, mm. That's not to say... I've never, you know, been harsh with someone. But I'm just saying that I, I hate to stand, I can't stand to be a, a bystander when this mm. is going on. And so I do find myself jumping in and later thinking, wow, I could have been killed. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just sort of my gut reaction. And so I try to be more strategic. But I do think that one time I, I had a spiritual director who I said, you know, I find myself just unable not to, to raise a challenge when I see someone misrepresented. Mm. Or, um, and, and the spiritual director said, you are struggling with your call as a prophet. And, mm. and that just is what it is. You have to be at peace with knowing that that indignation, that sense of rage, that sense of this is so wrong and I have to do something about it. Even if I see someone throw... If there's broken glass in the alley, I just go, oh, no, someone's going to drive their car. And they'll, you know, and I just, <laughs> this over-sensory spot. But that just pretty much is my nature. And maybe less so now as I, as I have gone through this so many times. I try to be more strategic. But, and I pray a lot about it. And I say, well, Lord, if you don't want me to confront this person, um, just if you want me to, you're going to have to put them in my path and I've got my speech all worked out and, <laughs> you know, about 80% of the time they, they show up and then I go, okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful though. I mean, it really is uh, a beautiful way to, to use really that gift, you know, um, a lot of times that as women that can, it can seem like, you know, we're, maybe we're too much or, you know, we shouldn't say this or stand up here. So, but it's, it's such a positive way to use that gift that you have. Um, are you into the Enneagram by any chance? No, no. I knew you were going to ask that because I just <laughs> haven't done it, but everybody talks about yeah. it. So why, what would I be? I would probably be um, a relentless prophet. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, it's funny because you kind of sound, you remind me of myself. So I'm an eight, which is the challenger. And eights are very confrontational and they're just kind of like in your face. And so that's, that's my are number. So what? Are you like that? I don't get that feeling. But. <laughs> well, it's funny because it was that, that was a big part of, I mean, I granted, I, I only, I would say fairly recently got into the Enneagram, but I remember the first time that I heard about my number, and I don't remember who it was. It was a woman. She was a pastor, and she was talking about how she's an eight, and that has been, like, basically the cause of struggle her entire life because, you know, people just think that female eights are just too much, and we're just too, you know, assertive or too much in your face, and it's not a, you know, female quality, and so I remember... When I heard that, I just burst into tears. I'm like, my whole life makes sense, you know? Like, no wonder I've gotten into so much problems and I didn't mean to, you know what I mean? Like, I just wanted to do the right thing. But anyways, yeah, I I can totally see that. And I can see how that can turn into, I mean, people might misinterpret that or people might look at that the wrong way or, you know, they might think that, you know, women shouldn't be that way. Um, but it, like I said, it really is such an incredible way to use your gift um, and use for for God's kingdom. And that's so wonderful. Uh, well, I work in an office with people who are even more like that than me. <laughs> <laughs> you want to say what to who? <laughs> that's so funny. And so how did you specifically get involved with uh, the CBE or just specifically with um, uh, women? Yeah. And, yeah. Well, I was, um, I did my New Testament at Harvard um, Divinity School. I, I studied New Testament there, and I was also at Gordon-Conwell. You can, you can kind of take, it's called the Boston Theological ETU, I guess, and you can, you can take classes across all the schools there, which is okay. wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I was in student council at Gordon-Conwell, and I, 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 you know, I was so struck by, I love the Bible, I loved history I'm I think history is a, a better fit for me mm-hmm. uh, I'm more passionate about it but it just seemed to me that all through scripture all through biblical history women were doing amazing things that a few New Testament scholars believe were not possible based on a few passages written by Paul mm-hmm. and so women went places where men were afraid to go, but when they came back to their sending churches could not stand up and talk about it, whereas men who didn't want to go anywhere dangerous could. Yeah. And the women were building mission organizations. They were funding all the work. They were in all positions of leadership. And they made a huge impact in social justice all over the world. Mm-hmm. And yet these were the very churches that demeaned women through one or two passages. Mm-hmm. And every time women make these cultural gains, they gain the vote, they start enrolling in medical school and law school, they start outpacing men in certain fields. There's a backlash through the church, and I was watching this and feeling like this was another place for a very strong prophetic voice, and I could not help myself. And every, everything I studied, I would forget what time it was, and I'd walk out of the library, and they had already closed the doors, and I would set off the alarms. <laughs> and I'd go, oh, they closed the doors, I forgot, oh no. And so then the cop would show up, Mimi, you have to leave when we give that warning. You have to get up and leave. So I figured, you know, I love this. I seem to, to be able to, to find strategic partnerships. And I was at Harvard 
waiting for the library to open. <laughs> and this woman walked by, and I thought, oh, that's Catherine Krieger. And so I said, oh, you're Catherine Krieger. And she said, yes, let's have lunch together. So we went to lunch at noontime, and she and I started talking about, like, strategies and projects. And before you know it, I was involved in CBE. And before you know it, when she retired, uh, she suggested the board hire me as, as president. So I became the second president mm-hmm. of CBE. Um, I was about, uh, I don't know, 30 years younger than she was when she started. But since then, I've learned a lot and aged hopefully gracefully and have found that the, the whole universe has changed since I, when I really began. There's so much more out there for yeah. people to study and explore. We're really, we're really in a, a better place, not an ideal place, not the perfect place, but we are much further along. Yeah, thinking about what you were saying, I, I always... I always think about that, like the whole emergency theology, like, no, women can't do this, but, you know, let's send them to this country. And if they're the only ones and that's okay, you know what I mean? Like this, like, you know, let's make this exception or that exception or this exception. And you just kind of come to a place where you're like, okay, let's just re kind of go back and relook at this whole thing, you know? So you, um, okay. So let's see, you did your PhD and like you said, in historical theology, um, and I'm curious, is there, was there like a specific thing in history pertaining to women or a specific woman in history or something that really uh, stood out to you, that influenced you, that, um, that gave you energy to kind of keep going? Well, you know, a, a PhD in historical theology was absolute ambrosia. It was mm-hmm. fabulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a wonderful department. I worked at the University of Durham in England. You know, Tom Wright was, was there, and mm-hmm. our department was just absolutely vibrant graduate forums and seminars were just second to none people presented brilliant papers all the time it was a really vivacious lively place not only spiritually but also intellectually and we had christians from all over the world russia you know india i some of my best friends were from china um some friends of mine were the great great granddaughters of the the revivals that swept through China and all of my friends from China were going back to teach in the underground church. They were theologians and all of them were women. So the PhD that I chose to work on was a project I picked up in seminary, which was the mystical theology of Jesse Penn Lewis. And I was looking at what was it about the early evangelicals? What was it about their theology that was so liberating to women and much of it was really a spiritual view of the atonement that Mm -hmm. that in some very very powerful way when you come to faith the things that are debilitating to you culturally are actually liberating to you spiritually Mm -hmm. so the early evangelicals had a very high view of the cross of atonement and that is why i believe they were such effective social justice people they they were at the forefront of abolition at the forefront of suffrage at the forefront of women not only on the mission field but but at the forefront of places where girls and women had been trafficked uh, and were suffering injustices Mm -hmm. not just in india but in this country as well And so they were the first women to write who lobbied for legislation to end trafficking because trafficking, our first impulse was a a, a litigus. We we wrote, uh, we fought for 
laws to protect girls from being chained to lumber camps. Every mm -hmm. lumber camp in Wisconsin that, that the early evangelicals were able to infiltrate had a brothel, and there were girls chained to beds there. Mm -hmm. And so that was the work of the early evangelicals. They did not think, well, you know, should I be in leadership? What if I mm -hmm. step on a man's ego? What if I... Well, they were going to court and fighting you know, a sex industry that was run by men, and they were threatened, their lives were threatened. They didn't sit around and worry about, is this not feminine? Am I going to challenge their masculinity? That None of that mattered. What mattered to them was that they had been called by God to be a force of justice, gospel justice in this world. And so it was like, what made them mm -hmm. so good at what they do? You know, mm -hmm. what was the spiritual nutrients in all of that? And what were the theological nutrients? And that was what I ended up looking at in the life of one particular person. And so you've done um, work, I know that you, you had said that you recently came from uh, Eastern Europe, and so you've done some some work across the globe. Um, what has that been like? You know, I know that, you know, in, in women's empowerment, you know, globally, it's, it looks so different everywhere. And so what's been your experience with that? Well, it does look different, but it's also, also very similar that... Mm -hmm that wherever girls and women suffer marginalization and abuse, it's almost always fueled by an idea that mm -hmm. they are in some way inferior to men. Mm -hmm. And this hasn't changed. I mean, on the one hand, lots of things have changed. Sex trafficking is far more sophisticated, yeah. like by every minute that goes by. And it's harder and harder to break up these networks but what we were doing in Eastern Europe, we were working with partners in Finland, and Finland has the second highest rate of domestic violence in Europe. Wow. I'm supposing, Kat, you may not be able to guess the country that's the greatest offender, because I couldn't believe it when I heard it either. What is it? Denmark. Really? Yeah, you're wow. like, wait a minute, these people have women as presidents yeah. and offices. What in the world is going on? Oh, wow. But we were working with with a, a group of Christians there who have done such amazing work and we held an event and we, we distributed books translated into Finnish because in the churches that believe in the resurrection and the deity of Christ, they are the ones where women are, are marginalized. Most some churches were, which have a more liberal uh, take on what the Bible and the miracles in the Bible, they're, they're quite prepared to ordain women, but they most evangelicals may not feel comfortable in the mm -hmm. churches because of the way in which the passages are interpreted. Mm -hmm. And so women are, so so it was great to see, uh, we had a critic come to our conference, he was gonna write an article um, dismissing our views as liberal and he ended up staying the whole conference and said, this is just great, you're right, I don't have anything to disagree with. Yeah. I'm gonna write an article supporting you. Oh wow, that's amazing. So that was what we were doing in Eastern Europe and we do that all over the world, but wherever so you can see that in the conservative church, women women and people who support women pastors were marginalized. One guy, he had written a book for his church because they fired him for his support of women. Oh, wow. That's so So common. while we were in India, another or in, in Finland, a group of us, from, another group from CBE's office were working on various events in Uganda. Um, and, and in that context, they were challenging... Um, women's marginalization based on a flawed idea of theology. So mm -hmm. ideas have consequences. I suppose I'm going to have that written on my tombstone. <laughs> ideas have consequences. Yes. 
That's very true. And yeah, very good. Thank you so much, Mimi. So where is it that if we want to, you know, if people want to read more of your stuff, um, they can go to cbeinternational.org and um, I guess where else? And then they can find you on Twitter. Yep, they can do that. I, um, if you look under leadership on our website, you can find me there and everything I've done is there, most everything. There's a wonderful podcast I did with Mark Laberton last year on Women's International Day looking at a lot of the projects we've been doing and I think Mark and I had a really good conversation. Hi, my name is Nilu Satoran. I'm from Iran. I was born and raised in Tehran, Iran, and I moved to the United States when I was 18. We first moved to Kansas with my family. Um, now I live in California. I'm an engineer. So can you talk to me a little bit about your transition from Iran to Kansas? Yeah, I was really excited to move to the United States since I was eight. I knew I was going to move to the United States uh, since I was very little. And so I was just really excited. And when I moved to Kansas, I just wanted to soak up all the culture, all the white culture. And, um, and part of it was because I wanted to fit in and uh, be part of the country and just not stand out. So in Kansas, what uh, I went to a four-year college immediately right when I started, and there were a lot of white people there because mm-hmm. it was in Manhattan, Kansas. It's mm-hmm. like out in the middle of nowhere. And so there I uh, made a lot of friends, mainly white people, and so that's how I transitioned into being an American. Mm. And so what would you say was like cultural like shocks or like things that really made you I guess recognize that you weren't American I think um the first thing was that like I just didn't look like people that Mm. were in the Midwest Mm. I'm I have a darker complexion and Mm. so that made me feel that that made me feel stand out and so um other things where just people people's comments like mm-hmm. they immediately wanted to know where I'm from and so that that was that that's been always a question that is like uncomfortable like mm-hmm. just like when you meet someone they just want to know where you're coming from mm-hmm. so that was another thing that made me feel like oh I guess I'm not from here so I need to respond to these questions mm-hmm. and other, other things uh was that like I I had immigrant parents, Mm -hmm. so I spoke very, very well English, but my parents didn't. So Mm -hmm. I I felt like a lot of, a lot of the burden of like transitioning them into the culture. Mm -hmm. So, so there was a lot of like change of role, things Mm -hmm. that I was worried about, like other people just weren't, that were from here. So that was a, that was a big part of it. And so how about your transition from like an Islamic context Mm -hmm. to like, I guess, Christian context. Like what was that transition Mm -hmm. like? Yeah. So, uh, in Iran, um, I, I was part of a family that didn't practice Islam traditionally, but we were still affected by the Islamic, uh, laws in the country. So I never dated in Iran and I, I, I always just, 
knew that I need to wait for a man to make decisions. Mm-hmm. E- even though I had a mom that was really strong woman, mm-hmm. it was just modeled for me that men call the shots in this mm-hmm. country. And so that was always the, what I what I expected. Mm-hmm. So then coming into the United States and being transitioning into Christianity and um for me it's not looking back that was a seamless transition and when I look back at it I feel like it was because I moved from one patriarchal uh, culture religion whatever you want to call it into another because it was a conservative Christianity and fundamentalism so th- that was really a seamless transition to me so can you tell me a little bit about how you decided to become a Christian when you got here? Yeah, so I was in college and I had just moved to two hours away from home and I was dating. And when that relationship um, was over, I felt like I needed to fill a void with uh, something else. And I didn't want to go back to the my ways of doing things because I thought of that as just wrong because I felt like the pain I was going through had something to do with the way I was doing things. So I didn't want to go about life like that again. And right about the same time I met this um, girl who was a was Christian and an engineer, so we connected, and she was a great friend to me. She made herself available, and she invited me to the campus ministry um, that was part that, at the school that I was going to. And when I went there, I met more people like her, and they were nice, kind, and they had guidelines and structures to offer, um, and things were pretty black and white, and I was attracted to that at the time, because I felt like, I was like, yes, now I have answers, and I can go about life in a different way and be be fine, and so that's what attracted me to Christianity, and I read the Bible with her six, uh, for six months, and even though I had a lot of questions, I, I was just done with the way I was living before, so I wanted this new thing to transform my life, and so that was very, very attractive to me, so um, that's how I decided to become a Christian. Mm-hmm. You made a comment earlier and you said that you went from one patriarchal religion to the other. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So in Iran, um, I grew up in a non-traditional family where we believed in God but didn't really practice Islam. But still, the culture in Iran is very Islamic, so that affected our lives in certain ways. And so I, I knew my place in society as a, as a girl was someone to just, who would just follow men mm-hmm. um, because of what was on TV in Iran, because of what I was seeing in different families. Men were the primarily, primarily the leaders of families and mm-hmm. the country. So, so my place was to just follow them and mm-hmm. let them make, you know, make decisions. So... Mm-hmm come in um, into the Christian culture seeing that there are only men teaching seeing that I'm supposed to wait on men to make the move and I'm supposed to um, pray to a God who is mainly referred to 
as a male and all the male pronouns and that was just um, normal to me because it was the same thing that I experienced in Iran. Now, now I don't want to uh, disregard all the good things that mm-hmm. comes with Christianity, but that transition was seamless to me mm-hmm. because of all the uh, similarities in the way they approached women. Mm-hmm. I can, I guess, I can easily spot patriarchal narratives now because I came from that uh, that culture and I can easily spot it when I tell myself stories of my worth and my standing my standings in society and what I'm supposed to do and not supposed to do so knowing coming from those cultures helps me see that those are just social constructs Mm -hmm. constructed by conservative Christianity Islam or any other kind of patriarchal Mm -hmm. beliefs or faith um, traditions. So now I'm able to um, recognize those Mm -hmm. and get past it. Mm. I like that you said, you know, recognize and move past it. And in that sense, like, can you tell me about Jesus and like your relationship with Jesus in regards to deconstruction? Mm hmm. Yeah, so that that's that's a really difficult uh, question to answer, especially because my construction started with a lot of anger, a lot of a lot a lot of anger towards how God is used by some people to to hurt mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. So it started with a lot of anger, but I think the person of Jesus. I still believe that there is a God and and I still believe that believe in that grace and I'm able to relate to the per- person of Jesus. So that's that's helped me in my deconstruction, but I, ha- I haven't it hasn't looked like a traditional um, kind of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we spoke earlier and you talked about, us not having all the answers and how that's been a source of freedom for you um so can you talk to me a little bit about that yeah um so obviously i was very attracted to just black and white and having all the answers and that's what why i became a christian but getting hurt by that kind of narrative pulled me out of that and made me feel fairly comfortable in uncertainty and a gray area and i much prefer right now to respond to people with I don't know mm-hmm. and that like I'm not sure I yeah I'm just way more comfortable with that because I acknowledge that I'm I'm, I'm just a piece in this gigantic mm-hmm. galaxy in this world mm-hmm. and all these and there are all these pieces and like who am I to make the call and say this is the answer like mm-hmm. I just don't want to do that I just don't feel comfortable and so I just love saying I don't know mm-hmm. and that and that's been yeah, a huge source of peace for me to be able to say that. Yeah, I agree. There is something beautiful about being able to admit I just don't know. So do you have any advice for people who want to get to know like your specific culture and not kind of lump you into just a general category, but kind of get to know who you are or people like you specifically? Do you have any advice for them? Yeah, for one thing I would say... Um, I think for me, maybe uh, other people have different opinions about this, but for me, it really helps to acknowledge that there is a difference in some people 
think that if we're just colorblind and just, you know, that's how I've been treated. Like people are colorblind and they don't acknowledge like there's a difference. I'm going through a different thing than you are um, because of where I'm from, because of how different I am. Um, for me, it's really helpful when people acknowledge that there is a difference and they're eager to know, um, to know about it. So asking smart questions, I think, is really important. And I want to be careful about saying asking questions because I want people, I, I know that it, I take it as my serious responsibility of researching uh, these things on my own before I go out and ask people because it's not other people's responsibility to explain to me what their experience is. So, but I would say doing reading, uh, doing a lot of reading and asking good questions is one of the ways to approach this.